0: Welcome to Into the Verse, where we share new and unexpected insights about the Parsha, diving deep into the verses to uncover the Torah's own commentary on itself. Hi, this is Ari Levison. In Parsha at Vayishlach, Jacob hears that his brother Esav is coming to meet him with 400 armed men. And understandably, Jacob's afraid, because when he last saw Esav 20 years earlier, Esav was planning to kill him. If you were with us last week, Rabbi Foreman ended the episode by making an interesting claim about this story. He said that Jacob's encounter with Esav in Vayishlach is somehow an expression of Jacob's godliness, that this is somehow the primary example of Jacob's greatness. Only, if you look at the story, it's not so obvious where that greatness is. Jacob's afraid what will happen, so he takes steps to protect his family and help the encounter with Esav turn out peacefully. That's something we can admire, sure, it sounds prudent, it sounds responsible, but I'm not sure I would have called it godly or an expression of divine values. Well, in this week's episode, Ami Silver argues that Jacob's motivations go far beyond just protecting his family. What Ami uncovers is a beautiful, heroic narrative hiding right in plain sight. Here's Ami.
1: Hi, I'm Ami Silver. I want to take a look with you at a key moment in Parshat Vayishlach when Jacob and Esav are reunited for the first time in 20 years. Just to summarize, Jacob had taken the firstborn blessings from their father Isaac, and Esav vowed to murder him in revenge. But Jacob fled for his life and spent the next couple decades in the house of his father-in-law, Lavan. Now, Jacob is finally making his way home, and by the look of things, Aesop seems ready to make good on his promise to kill his brother. But things don't go as expected. Jacob sends Aesop a bunch of gifts and makes a big show of honor. And in response, Aesop ends up hugging and kissing him. So, once again, Jacob manages to evade the wrath of Aesop and emerges from this encounter unscathed. But I want to ask you, what exactly are we supposed to learn from this? That Jacob had good street smarts? That when push came to shove, he managed to distract Esav with some gifts? So we learn that if we're ever in a pinch, bowing to the adversary and playing to his ego can be an effective way out? Is that Jacob's lasting legacy? Seems like an odd lesson. I think that if we dig deeper into this story, we'll discover that there's something more profound taking place. Let's replay the story more slowly, paying close attention to its details, and I'll show you what I mean. When Jacob hears that Esav is on his way with 400 men, he's terrified. So Jacob splits up his family in the hopes that at least some will survive the coming onslaught, and he begs God for protection. He also sends Esav gifts, and we're not talking about just a greeting card and a bouquet of flowers. He literally sends every type of domesticated animal you can think of, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 female sheep, 20 rams, 30 mother camels, and their nursing calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And if you think about it, this isn't just a one-time gift. It's an investment. Jacob sends males and females of each species, enough for Esau to breed herds and herds of livestock. In ancient agricultural society, this might have been the equivalent of giving him a chunk of stock in Apple or Google. It's a gift that keeps on giving. So it really does seem like a flat-out bribe. Not nice to use those words, maybe, but that's what it seems like. To accompany the bribe, it seems like there was also a healthy dose of over-the-top flattery. Jacob tells his servants to bring the animals to Esav and say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. Mincha hi shlucha ladoni le'esav. It's a tribute for my master Esav. Jacob almost seems like he's groveling. Esav, my master, please accept this tribute from thy humble servants, Jacob. Then, when Jacob finally gets within range of Esav, he bows down not once, but seven times, at Gishto until he reached his brother. It really seems like Jacob will do anything to butter up Esav, and hopefully convince him to spare his family. And the crazy thing is, it actually worked. Esau sees him and seems to inexplicably undergo a complete about-face. He runs to Jacob. He hugs him and falls on his neck. He kisses Jacob. And then they cry. It's a love fest. Jacob's machinations worked after all. But why did Esau fall for this? This is the guy who vowed to kill his brother over their father's blessings. And he's been holding the grudge for 20 years. Now Jacob gives him a fancy petting zoo and calls him nice names and he lets it all go? So, maybe Esau is just a greedy buffoon. One moment he's full of rage, but when you buy him off with goodies, he's your best friend. Could be. But I think there's evidence that something else was afoot. To get to the heart of what's going on here between Jacob and Esau, I'd like to take a step back for a second and play one of our favorite games here at Aleph Beta. Where have we heard this all before? Ask yourself, where else earlier in the Torah have we encountered a scene of sorts that involves brothers, in which there's talk about one brother becoming extremely wealthy, one brother being a master over the other, one brother bowing down to the other? Well, wouldn't you know it, all of these elements appeared 20 years earlier in the blessings that Isaac gave to Jacob, the blessings that were intended to go to Asaph. That was the last time these brothers crossed paths, and it's the reason they're meeting again. Only now, let's take a look at those brachot. Isaac's blessing began: "Vitenachah Elokim mital umishmaneha aretz." God will give to you from the dew of heaven and the fat of the land. "Verovdagan vetirosch" with abundant grains and vines. In other words, God's going to make you really rich. You'll receive the divine gifts of rain and crops. Now, those are gifts that only God can provide. But when Jacob meets Esau 20 years later, he gives him the next best thing, enough livestock to allow Esau to build up his own commercial empire. Isaac's blessing also spoke about gaining power and status. He said, Ya'avducha amim, nations will serve you. Heve gvir la'achecha, you will be a master over your brothers. So maybe it's no accident that Jacob calls himself Esau's servant, avducha Ya'akov and calls Esav Adoni, my master. And look at the final element in Isaac's blessing. Bowing. b'nei imecha, Your mother's children will bow to you. When the brothers meet again, one of Rebekah's children is indeed bowing to the other. Jacob bows to Esav seven times. And it goes still further. Isaac said, Yishtachavu l'cha Nations will bow to you. Well... After Jacob bows to Esau, his sons, the nascent tribes of Israel, all bow down to Esau one by one. They would one day grow into a great nation, and they were all bowing to Esau at this very moment. When we put the pieces together, we begin to see a startling picture. It's as if the words of Isaac's blessing were coming to life right before Esau's eyes. At this moment, Jacob seems to actually be giving the blessings back to Esau. And Jacob seems to intimate as much. A bit later on in their encounter, he says, "Kachnat Birhati, birchati, please take my blessing, asher hu that has been given to you. On the surface, Jacob is simply talking about the animals he sent his brother. But after hearing all the other echoes of the original blessing, we can't ignore the deeper meaning behind these words. Take my bracha, that was meant to be yours. Perhaps Jacob's antics weren't just bribes and flattery after all. This whole conflict was about the blessings he had taken 20 years ago. Perhaps Jacob was trying to set things straight, even the scales as it were, between him and his brother. So that might be part of what's going on here. But I want to argue to you that beyond questions of wealth and power, Jacob was looking to make things right at an entirely different level, too. Because remarkably, if we broaden our lens and keep looking at these two episodes side by side, the parallels between them actually continue. Twenty years ago, Jacob walked into Isaac's room claiming to be Esav. Right away, Isaac was suspicious. So he said, Kishana Come close and let me feel you, son. He wanted to pat down Jacob to determine his true identity. Now, fast forward 20 years. As Jacob makes his approach toward Esau, he bows seven times, ad gishto ad until he came close to his brother. Gishto, gishah, it's the same word both times. And just like Jacob came close to Isaac and his father put his hands on him, here too, Jacob comes close to Esau and his brother puts his hands on him. He wraps him in an embrace. And there's more. The next thing Isaac told Jacob was, Gishana Come close and kiss me, son. And 20 years later, the next thing Esau does is, kehu. He fell upon Jacob's neck and kissed him. And Esau didn't just kiss him anywhere. He kissed Jacob on the neck. Now, Jacob's neck had also played an important role back when he took those blessings. Jacob was afraid that his smooth skin would give him away. So in order to make him seem more like Esau, Rebekah took hairy goatskins and placed them on Jacob's hands, and on the smooth of his neck. Now, Asap kisses him in that very same spot. And perhaps most importantly, let's talk about the conclusion of each of these scenes. Both stories end in tears. When Asap realized that Jacob had taken the blessings, it says, He raised his voice and cried. 20 years later, after the brothers embrace and kiss, Vaiv Ku, they also cried. We're seeing that these two stories, separated by 20 years, are following almost all the same steps. But there's a major contrast between these stories that I believe might hold the key to understanding the larger meaning behind this later encounter. It has to do with the tears. Although both stories end in tears, the tears are very different from one another. 20 years ago, Aesop was crying tears of anguish and rage. Tears that were transformed into a vengeful promise to kill his brother. Now, 20 years later, Jacob and Aesop both cry. They're crying together. If we put it all together, it seems to me that these were tears of true healing and reconciliation. And they were caused by Jacob's initiative. Jacob knew that there was one thing and one thing only that could repair his relationship with Aesop. He had to go back to the root of it all, to the blessings he took from their father. So as he approached Esau, Jacob acted out those blessings before him. He was showing Esau that he was ready to let go of the brachot and give them back to him. It wasn't a show or a bribe. Jacob was coming clean. He was willing to do what was necessary to restore their shattered relationship. And when Esau saw this, he was moved to tears. The brothers embrace and in their embrace, they then retrace the steps of Jacob's earlier deception. Only this time, it's different. The same steps that were once used to deceive and tear the brothers apart are now bringing them closer together. This wasn't a replay of the past. It was redeeming that earlier episode, repairing the messy roots of their conflict. In the end, there is a moral to this story. And it isn't that you need to do whatever is necessary to come out on top. If anything, it's that you need to do whatever is necessary to heal a painful past, especially when you contributed to that pain. Once upon a time, Jacob covered his neck to deceive and take what was meant for Esau. But now, he's willing to literally stick his neck out to his brother in a sincere effort to make amends. Jacob didn't know whether Esau would attack him or kiss him. But his willingness to initiate, and be vulnerable toward his brother, proved to be his greatest strength. For me, this speaks to the heart of what reconciliation is all about. All too often, we remain in conflict with other people simply because neither of us is willing to budge, to be vulnerable enough to admit fault, or show the other one how much we sincerely want to fix this relationship. Jacob had the courage to rebuild what was broken, To repair the wounds of the past. That is a model to aspire to. It's a legacy to be proud of.
0: Hi, Ari again. Here's what I'm taking away from this week's piece. When Jacob reaches out to Asaph, he's doing something so restorative and beautiful, but also something that's so hard we often don't even try to do it. It's really hard to move past a fight you've had with someone. It's so emotionally vulnerable to say you're sorry, and people will spend their whole lives in a conflict because they can't bring themselves to take that first step. But Jacob decided he wasn't willing to stay stuck in a conflict with his brother. And that was a heroic choice, because Jacob wasn't just emotionally vulnerable, he was physically vulnerable too. Jacob could have made so many legitimate excuses for not reaching out to Esav, but he realizes that brothers can't fight. That is just unacceptable. So he puts his neck on the line, and in a symbolic way, he even offers the blessings back. He's willing to do whatever it takes, all for the sake of healing this relationship. What a powerful lesson for us. Into the Verse is a free product of Aleph Beta. If you want to help us keep it that way, head on over to alephbeta.org and subscribe. Be our partner in spreading Torah. Helping us is far from the only reason to check out the website, though. You see, Rabbi Foreman and the team have spent a decade building the most incredible library of Torah. And I'm not just talking about podcasts, I'm talking about videos on every Parsha and holiday with animations that don't just capture the attention, they make the most complex ideas seem as clear as day. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you gotta check it out. Again, that's alephbeta.org. Oh, and if you're already a subscriber, Please share this podcast with your friends and family. It really helps us grow. And before I go, I want to remind you again about our voice note feature. With the click of a button, you can leave us a voice note. We've had so much fun hearing about what the episode means to you, about your thoughts or questions, even just how you interact with Aleph Beta. We can't wait to hear from you too. Just click the link in the description. This episode was written and recorded by Ami Silver. When it originally aired on Aleph Beta, it was edited by Rivki Stern. Into the verse editing was done by Sarah Penza. Our senior editor is Beth Lash. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. And our editorial director is me, Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.